Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to be wrapping up our series here in James. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20 is our text for today. While you're turning there, let me relate a story to you that I came across here about a couple weeks ago. The story is told of two men sitting together in a bar in the remote, in the remote Alaskan wilderness. One of the guys is religious, the other is an atheist. They are arguing over the existence of God. The atheist says, look, it's not like I have an actual, don't have actual reasons for not believing in God. It's not like I haven't ever experimented with the whole God and prayer thing. Just a month ago, I got caught away from the camp in that terrible blizzard, and I was totally lost, and I couldn't see anything. And it was 50 below, and so I tried it. I fell to my knees in the snow and cried, Oh God, if there is a God, I'm lost in this blizzard and I'm going to die if you don't help me. The religious guy looks at the atheist all puzzled. It's like, well, then you must believe now, he says. After all, you're here, alive. The atheist just rolls his eyes. No, man, all that was was a couple of Eskimos happened to wander by and showed me how the way back to camp. Do you ever come to God in prayer and then put God in a box and how he can answer your prayer. I think that's something that we, we tend to do. We, 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 or we I'll just say me. We, we have this way that we want God to answer our prayer. And then when God answers our prayer and it's not the way that it looks or how I thought it should look, we either completely miss it or we're not okay with it. Anyway, so we're going to look at prayer today. And like I said, we're wrapping up the series in the book of James. And I don't know, it feels like we have just like, I don't know, gone over the book of James 90 miles an hour. Um, we've done it in, I think, eight to nine weeks here. I just came across, um, there's a church, not, not local here, but in Ohio, that they spend a whole year in the book of James. It's like, that's a long time, but oh my goodness, I can see how it's, how it's doable. It's in just the text that we have today, there's like five or six messages probably, and I found myself just going down one rabbit hole after the next and have to come back out. It's like, okay, we can't, you just can't go into all, all these details. And so I'm very conscious here this morning with, with our text because it's a text that has been misused, it's been abused in some ways, and it's confusing in some ways. There's pieces that I certainly don't understand. But my prayer is simply this, that you hear, and that I say the words that God wants me to say, and I don't say what God doesn't want me to say. But it's a powerful passage, and it's all about prayer. And it's interesting that James ends up his book this way with prayer, because as we look through James, it's this, all these practical ways that he talks about, about how we are to live out our faith. So our faith needs to have a practical outworking if our faith is real, is what James would argue. He tells us how we're to deal with trials. <clears throat> we looked at that. We, how to deal with success. He tells us how we're to care for orphans and widows, how to deal with temptation, how we should control our tongue, how we make plans for the future, how we should avoid favoritism, and on and on. All these practical things that James talks about. And yet, he ends then with this peace on prayer, and he actually begins his passage and prayer just not as 
um, out front, but he, in the very first, in verse 5, he, he starts with this idea of prayer and how we need to ask for wisdom when we need wisdom. And so it's kind of book-ended in prayer. And as he concludes with this emphasis on prayer and all the practicalities of James, we can easily miss that the, with all those practicalities that James talks about, the importance of prayer and the strength, and that the strength and the ability to live out our faith in all these ways that he's talked about are drawn from our connection with our Heavenly Father. So if we're not connected with our Heavenly Father through prayer, how in the world can we ever then actually move into living out our faith in all these practical ways? So you should be there by now. If you're not, James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another, to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is great, has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My dear brothers, if anyone among you is, wonders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that, that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now you probably noticed the first verses 13 through 18, every single verse has this mention of prayer, of praying. And first he starts with the individual praying. Anyone among you who's suffering, let him pray. The person as an individual praying. Then he talks about the elders praying. Then he talks about the church praying. And so it's, it's throughout, throughout the, um, all of our life that we are to be in prayer. So when do you pray? How do you pray? Why should you pray? What does it mean to pray? Do you ever ask those questions? What does all that mean? So as we look at this text, there's a couple of things that I think are really important for us to remember. I look back in my notes. If you remember early, early this year, I don't remember exactly when it was, um, Mike Slabel had a, had a sermon on prayer. We talked about prayer, and the one thing that I had in my notes and that I think is really crucial for us to remember, especially even as we deal with this piece, is that he says this, that prayer is not a transaction, but it's relational. Prayer is not simply a transaction, that I ask God for this, and if I do things this way and this way, then this is going to be the result of it. But it's about a relationship with our Father. Prayer is not a formula. There's not a certain formula for you and I to follow if we want to have our prayers answered in a certain way. And the other, maybe the perhaps the most important is we tend to make prayer just about us, about me, and about what I want. But prayer is not to accomplish our will. 
but the will of our Father. And in prayer, we often long for an outcome that fits into our plans. So I think those are important things to remember as we talk about prayer and as we look at some of the different ways that James talks about praying here. So I broke it down um, in three different, three different sections here. <coughs> um, and the first one is simply, I, I call it, when, when are we to pray? So when should you pray? When should I pray? Well, he starts, verse 13. He says it very clearly. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. That's it. Is any among you suffering? Now, the Greek word here, for, like for suffering, it simply means something is going bad. It's not talking about trivial things like, oh, you spilled, spilled my coffee. or I mean, I guess that's not trivial, but if you spilled, I don't know what. But it's not these, just these little things, but he's talking about deep suffering that you are facing in your life. And those are things that we all go through. We've all gone through or we will go through. And the question that I think we need to address in ourselves is, what is my first response in in all these things about when we should pray? What's my first response? So in this case, what's my first response to suffering? What's the, my first response when I'm going through, through something that is extremely difficult? It's a serious affliction. I mean, it could be the loss of a loved one. It could be someone has accused you wrongly of doing something. It could be in the face of infidelity, family tensions, family dynamics, serious afflictions that are going on in your life. <clears throat> How do I respond when that comes my way? Now, if you're anything like me, you get... Maybe a little mad, angry. Maybe you grumble, complain, get upset. Maybe we pity ourselves. On and on and on and on we can go. But what's my first response and what should my first response be? James simply says, let him pray. If you ever are suffering, going through affliction, pray. And I think James wants us to see this. There's this childlike coming to Jesus, to our Father in heaven. It's simply that says, Look, God, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble here. There's not this dramatic way that I need to pray and all things are going to be gone and taken care of. But when, when we are in trouble, probably we're least likely to feel like praying. When we're facing with something hard. Sometimes we're so blinded by the things that we're going through that we find it even hard to pray and we don't know how to pray. Maybe we don't, we're at a loss for words. You can pray through the Psalms. You can pray through Paul's prayers. I don't know, whatever. There's so many different ways. But remember that it is about a relationship. And sometimes the most powerful prayer we can pray is simply, Father, that's it. Maybe that's all we can say. Maybe that's all we can get out. I had to think of the song that we sing here sometimes, I Speak Jesus. Sometimes that's all we've got. He says pray. That's praying. Prayer is lament. It can be sometimes when you're feeling angry and you want to complain about it, complain to God about it. Is that okay? 
Can we just tell God that I'm upset? This, this makes me mad. Why, why is this happening? Why is it going to this? But notice how he ends that. He doesn't say, is any among you suffering? Let him pray, and the trouble is, poof, gone. No, he just says, if any among you is suffering, let him pray. Usually it ends up, you know what, you, you're in trouble, you pray, and there's trouble. It's still there. But what does it do when we pray? What, it, it's, we, it changes our perspective, and we realize that we don't have to carry the burden alone. There's way too much here. I'm sorry. Oh, man. When we're cheerful, when things are going great, and maybe this isn't harder than even the first one, because when things are going great, we tend to feel like we've got everything under control and we don't need God or we forget about God. But if you're feeling cheerful, things are going well. He says, bring it to God. Bless God for it. Sing praises to God for it. Don't hold it to yourself. When else do we pray? So we pray when we're suffering. We pray when we're cheerful. We pray when we're sick. When there is someone sick among us, it says that we are to pray. It says, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now the word sick in verse 14 is talking about a physical ailment, a physical sickness that someone might have. And then in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. It's talking about a spiritual weariness, a spiritual toil. Someone is just absolutely bogged down in their spiritual life. And that is the sickness that he's talking about there. So this piece right here, this can raise just a ton of questions. And sometimes we don't know what to do with it. Sometimes I don't know what to do with it. But we need to be careful not to make more of it than it is. But we also need to be careful not to make less of it than it is. So notice who's involved in, in this whole process. I want to talk about this anointing just a little bit because we've, we've done it here. We've, had, we've, we've gone through it here in our, in our church family. And so let's talk about it a little bit. And this one would be so great to spend an hour digging into. Um, and if you want to dig into this, the whole idea of anointing at some point, um, I have a couple great podcasts that you need to listen to and that will, yeah, you can take a really deep dive into it because it's really, really fascinating. But this is the only place in the New Testament where we're instructed to do this. There are occasions when Jesus was anointed. There are occasions when the disciples would anoint people. But this is the only place in, in the New Testament when we as a church are instructed to do this, to anoint one. So the church is involved because it says... Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. So this assumes that the person is a part of your church family. And notice, too, that the one who is sick is the one who initiates this whole process. So the elders or the leaders of the church are not to be running around looking for people that they can anoint. But if 
um, it is the one who is sick is the one who initiates the process. And then it is the elders of the church. And notice it is the faith of the elders that it says that the prayer, the prayer of, uh, let, me, let me just read it for you here. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. That is the prayer of the one, the elders who are praying over that person. So the whole idea of anointing and anointing with oil, if you go back to the Old Testament, let me just at least point you, point you to where you need to go in, in digging in into why this is actually mentioned here. Um, who, is, who was anointed with oil in the Old Testament? It was the kings were anointed with oil. The priests were anointed with oil in, to fulfill their calling. And at times there were prophets that were anointed with oil. And in one occasion there's even a place that was anointed with oil. I'm going to let you go find it. Figure out where it is. But in, in each case, the anointing with oil, the oil holds... There's no magic potion or formula in this oil. You smear it on someone's forehead and poof, that... that there's no, there's no magic in that, but there is something in the anointing with oil and how it was used throughout all of the Old Testament where it is, it is it's this, um, oh, what's the word I can use? There, there's this, almost like a channel, there's, there, there's this direction of God's attention to something very specific. And, in, and when we anoint someone with oil and we pray over them, we're saying this is something very specific in God, drawing God's attention and saying, God, here's a need. We need you to step in to this situation and meet our need. So when should you anoint someone with oil? When don't you anoint someone with oil? So now the question becomes, you anoint someone with oil, and you pray over him, and listen to what James says, and tell me, what, what do you do with this? You anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and this is, he's talking in verse 14, remember, about someone who is physically sick, and in verse 15 about someone who is spiritually sick, and the prayer of faith will raise, save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Is that a guarantee that if wherever we do this, this and this, God's going to heal them? It, oh, it just it drives my mind crazy. Because it, it sounds like James, sometimes I want to ask James, like, why would, you, why would you say it this way? But it sounds like James saying there's this formula that you follow, and then healing will happen. Well, we know, and I think you would all agree with me, that God doesn't always physically heal someone here on earth. I've been a part of anointings when God has. I've also been a part of anointings when God hasn't, at least in our way. Remember that prayer is not about a transaction, but a relationship. And in, the, in that relationship with God, we say, God, this is what we want. And yet we hold the outcome freely. And we say, God, it's, it's still yours now, if you've been ever, if you've been a part of an anointing, a praying desperately, pleading God to intercede, 
Even think of the two young men who lost their lives in the last week. You pray for healing for those people and they, they die. Did something go wrong? Did we mess up? Did you, you, all these questions start rolling through their mind. Well, listen, when, it, when, when James here, when he talks about the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, notice what he doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us how the healing is going to happen. And he doesn't tell us when the healing is going to happen. So God has ways that are far beyond, far beyond ours. And there's, there's, there's tons more that we could talk about here. But we just flat out can't. Um, we'll keep you here all day. But there's something... So we have this, we have this tendency, or I, I have this tendency, when, we, when we've seen God, we have cried out and cried out. Let me use my wife's dad for an example. For 18 years, people cried out for his soul to be saved. Cried out on and on and on. And what happens? He dies in an accident. And it's just, it's just this gut-wrenching thing. And it's like, okay, God, I don't even know how to pray anymore. I don't know if prayer matters. You have all these questions about, about prayer, about God, all these things. And then in the future, there's its tendency to say, well, I'm not sure what to do with this. And so we don't, we almost like... We quit boldly coming to God and saying, God, here's a need. Would you please come and meet this need? Because, well, what if he doesn't? What does that, what does that say? What, all these questions. Am I the only one who thinks this? I hope not. Um, but we have all these things that come to our mind. But one thing is certain. We are to pray. And the prayer is not about giving us just what we want. But our, the prayer is, our prayers are to connect us with the heart of our Father so that we know how to live in the brokenness of the world that we faith. Because it says, he says, prayer is powerful. The second point, and I'm gonna, I'll fly through it quickly, I promise. Prayer is powerful. The prayer of faith. Prayer is the act, the act of prayer is what releases the channel of God's power in our lives. Satan dreads, this is from Samuel Chadwick, says, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His only concern is to keep God's people from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Prayer of faith, the prayer of faith that he talks about here is just this unwavering, confidence in God that he knows what is best even when I don't, even when it does not make any sense in my life. It's not about the quantity of the faith. It is about where our faith is placed in. And then he keeps on going because I want want to talk about, I want to at least point us to what makes prayer so powerful. What is the power of of prayer, and he talks about confessing our sins to each other. I don't know when the last time is that we actually just did this. You know, we practice 
confessing our sins to each other? That's so, so hard. But why, why does James mention it here? And why is it so important in the work of prayer? Sin that remains hidden or silenced has both physical and spiritual implications. When there's sin in our lives, unconfessed sin that we know is in our lives, it will hinder the work of the Spirit and it will hinder our prayers. Psalm 66 says, If I have been made aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not weak to save and his ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities are separating you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that you do not listen so that he does not listen. Confession to one another is essential because sin seeks to isolate us from each other. And it also removes this idea that I'm in it alone, that I'm the only one who has faced what I'm, whatever it is that we're, I'm going through. But notice what he says. We confess our sins to each other so that, why? We can pray for each other. Confession, someone publicly confesses, and there's, there, there's a whole, whole series of things that we could talk about with how that, how that all happens, what that actually looks like, but confession, when someone has confessed a sin in, the, in their life to, to you as a person or to a group of people, it has too often been used as fodder for gossip. He said, oh, did you hear this? Did you hear that about this person? Which ironically is sin, and is something that should be confessed. But he says we are to confess our sins to each other so that we can pray for each other, so that we know how to pray for each other. If I just portray to you that I've got it all together, what do you need to pray for me? We're so broken and so messed up. We so need each other in our lives. And knowing how to pray for each other Freeze and praying for each other frees the Spirit of God to move in each other's lives. David Guzik says, Real, deep, genuine confession of sin has been a feature of every genuine awakening or revival for the past 250 years. And I'd even go further than that and say it's been that throughout history. Every great revival that has happened has been founded and grounded in confession and prayer. That's been the root of all of it goes back to Acts chapter 19, talks about that. So prayer is extremely, extremely powerful, but it is important that we take a look in inventory of our own lives and that we confess our sins, that we pray for each other. Then he says, if he's um, there, um, the end of verse 16, the prayer of the righteous person has great power in its working. The King James uses the word fervent, which means just strong, persistent, bold, and not giving up. And this one just, this one smacks me between the eyes because it's so easy to say, well, God, you can do whatever you need to do, so just, just do your thing. But listen to what one commentator says about fervent prayer. He says, Much prayer is not effective simply because it is not fervent, or we might say passionate. 
It is offered with a lukewarm warm attitude that virtually asks God to be, care about something that we care very little about. Effective prayer must be fervent, not because we must emotionally persuade a reluctant God, but because we must gain God's heart by being fervent for the things that he is fervent about. See how prayer gets us in tune with God and we need to become fervent and passionate and praying about the things that he is passionate and cares about, not about making prayer for what I want. Then he gives us an example of Elijah. You can read the story that he references in Acts 17 and 18. We're going to skip over that. So go from the prayer of the righteous person has great power, this confessing and praying for, for each other, all the way down to the last two verses, and we pray in intercession for each other. And James ends, he ends his book, to me it's just almost like the weirdest way, there's no like really conclusion. It's like James, like, just kind of wrap it up neatly, nicely. But he doesn't, he just, he says, my brothers, if anyone wanders from the truth, anyone among you, so this is talking about a person who is a part of your church or was a part of the church family and has wandered away from the truth. I think that's the, the, the specifics that he's talking about. And he says, how then we should inter- how can we intercede for that person? So the question, are you your brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Yes, we are. We are each other's keeper. And it seems to me that James is making a connection to this, to confessing our sins to each other, to praying for each other, to restoring and bringing back the brother who is wandering. So just notice the progression of that. So when we confess our sins to each other, we are first taking inventory of our own lives. We're confessing the sin, the wrongdoing of our own lives. Not only confessing maybe even the sin, but just confessing that I I live fearfully. I live my life filled with fear. Whatever it may be, we confess that and we we give an example by doing that. We say, we don't have it together. We're broken people. We're messed up people. And then we pray for each other. And that includes, I think, the person who is the one who is wandering. And then we restore the person, the one who has wandered. And we restore that person how? Let me read what Paul says about restoring the person who has wandered from the truth. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. There is a relationship that has been built that, that needs to continue on, I think. It is through relationship, through the, the confessing and the praying for each other through restoring such a person in gentleness. But one thing is certain, when someone wanders from the truth, that can be any one of us, God uses his people to bring them back. He uses his people and he will use you and I. And so we're called to lovingly pursue one another. We're to pursue the one who has walked away. We're to pursue each other. And God uses his people to pursue that. But above all things, and in all things, James is telling us, pray. 
Pray. When do you pray? How do you pray? Why do you pray? What does prayer look like? Remember, it's not a transaction, but it's a relationship. And that is, that's the, the drive of the whole thing. Now, there's, there's so many more things that we probably should have talked about. This would be a great one to have multiple Sunday school lessons over, I think. Um, I'm just going to do what James does. We're going to just leave it right there. He just ends it, so we're just going to end it. Um, thanks for your time. We're not going to have a closing song here this morning. Um, Tim, Tim left, so pre- be praying for their family. They have the viewing and the funeral here this afternoon, so let's be praying for them. We just talked about prayer, so let's actually put it into action and use it in our lives. Um, stand with me. Let's close in prayer. God, your word's powerful, and it's active, and it's working in each one of our lives. God, we need, we need the spirits at work in each of our lives. And God, there's so many things that we need to talk about and should talk about when it comes to praying and prayer, what it is, what it looks like. But above all, we can look at the example of Jesus, but it's about a relationship with you. And as our relationship with you grows, our prayers change. Our prayer, how we pray for, what we're passionate about, what we care for changes. So change our hearts, God. Help us to be passionate and care about the things that you care about and to love our neighbor as yourself and to bring back the wandering who has been lost. Thank you that you love us and that you care for us. I pray for the Candle family as they go through their viewing, the funeral this afternoon. I just pray your presence in each one of their lives and your comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you're dismissed.